1: Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of A Million Other Choices. I am, and will always be, your host, Kim. This episode was originally published on August 1st, 2021. But I have re-edited it because I, like many a podcaster, suffer from first episode embarrassment syndrome. So to those of you that have listened to the original version and kept listening, you are so appreciated that you allowed me the opportunity to grow and evolve. This is a true crime podcast and I know, like my title suggests, there are a million other choices so I appreciate you tuning in. I myself have lost a family member to homicide, so I am committed to honoring the victims and their families. I know what it's like to stumble across an article or a 911 call posted on YouTube. I also know that there is nothing that compares to the grief and trauma of losing someone you love by someone else's hands. The murder of my niece in 2018 changed who I am as a person, so I hope that my compassion comes through in these stories. Having said all that, I do not like jibber-jabber and chit-chat, so let's get to the story. The story I am bringing you today is the murder of a little girl that shares my first name and was only four years younger than me when she disappeared in 1980, and she lived only a 10-minute drive from the house I shared with my own family. This is the murder of Kimmy Thompson. Several months ago, I was discussing my addiction to true crime with my mom. And she reminded me of this case of a little girl named Kim who disappeared while walking to school one day. And like any crime obsessed would, I leaned in and asked her to tell me everything that she remembered while grabbing my phone and Googling. She said that, in a way that you do sometimes when remembering events from a long time ago, I think her mom did it or something, she was found in a dumpster. It turns out neither of those details were true, but it reminded me how these stories get lost over time and forgotten and warped in their details. I was only nine at the time, and I obviously didn't watch the news back then, so it isn't one of the cases that sparked my interest in true crime, but I've been thinking about it a lot since that discussion. I will warn you that this is a 41-year-old case, and not a cold case. It has been solved. And I know that some of you don't care for older stories, but I can assure you that the detective work and evidence used to convict was the same as used today. Nothing fancy required, just good old gumshoe detective work and witnesses willing to come forward. But this family has been serving a life sentence for over 40 years and Kimmy's story deserves to be told. We hear these stories on podcasts and they get wrapped up. The perp goes to prison for 25 years to life, and the camera crews pack up their cameras and move on. But 25 years actually goes by. And then what? The victim is still gone, and the family has lost 25 years of new memories. In this case, and in many others, the mom has changed who she is, how she lives, and how she raises her other kids. You go to therapy and try to move forward, And then come the appeals and parole hearings and the ever-present threat of the person that murdered your loved one being free to walk the streets. Murder in your family changes who you are and how you trust. So I feel that the full cycle of this story needs to be told. Calgary, Alberta, Canada is my hometown. We moved here in the summer of 1978 when the population was 568,000 people it's now about 1.4 million. Calgary is sandwiched between the Rocky Mountains and the prairies of Saskatchewan. But in 1980, Calgary was just a small city, lots of suburban neighborhoods with a mix of blue and white collar families. Between the years of 1975 and 1980, the police were aware of a serial rapist in the Altador area who had attacked mostly young girls between the ages of 10 and 11 but had also preyed on young adult women as well. A series of rapes and indecent exposures where someone is going around doing a lot of serial killer in the making things. Altador is a neighborhood in the city's southwestern region. It is close to the Elbo River with areas of grassy hills along Sandy Beach and River Park. Houses there were built around 1945 to 1950, mostly bungalows with large yards. I found out while discussing this case that my fiancé, Tim, had lived in Altador and went to fifth grade at Altador Elementary. Both him and I are the same age, so we were both nine at the time of Kimmy's disappearance. So he took me for a field trip to see the area where this happened. But a lot has changed since then. The bungalows have mostly been replaced with high-priced infills. In 2010, it was voted one of Calgary's best neighborhoods because it's currently very trendy. But in 1980, it was just your average middle-class neighborhood with two-car garages filled with white Ford Pintos and station wagons with wood paneling. In January of 1978, a 10-year-old girl, who is not named in the source documents, was walking from the corner store, which Tim remembers was called Moon's. She was walking with her two dogs to the house of her mom's friend's place where they were sleeping over. Within only feet of the house, a man between 22 to 25 years old approached her and asked her if the dogs bite. Something about this man freaked her out and good for her for trying to trust her instincts because 1978 was a few years before we talked about stranger danger. So when he asked her where she lived, she lied and said she lived down the road. But unfortunately, her lie did nothing to dissuade him and he grabbed her up in his arms and ran with her for a couple of blocks when he took her into a garage. At some point, this poor little peanut was so terrified, she asked him to hold her hand because she just needed something to cling to, even if it was a monster. She remembers him asking to kiss her and she gagged. After raping her, he tells her to count to a 100, but she makes a beeline for home where the police were actually waiting. When her two dogs had come home without her, her mum knew something bad was up. If we fast forward to November 1979, another 10-year-old girl is walking home from skating in the afternoon when she was attacked and tackled to the ground, raped and told by this guy that he knows where she lives and will kill her family if she tells anyone. Finally, in December 1979, the police warned the public of a serial rapist in the area. Mind you, this is after 20 attacks of either indecent exposure or rape. Now, before you get thinking what the heck are parents doing letting their kids walk home from places, remember, this is 1979, a different time. And this is Canada. Even today, by American standards, Canadian cities are still pretty small. We all ran around our neighborhoods until dark as kids. One month later, on January 24, 1980, these attacks will become a parent's worst nightmare and escalate to murder. Kimmy Dawn Thompson, known as Kimmy to her friends and family and whom her mom called Chickie, was born on February 28, 1974 to Evelyn Thompson she was the youngest of three including older brother brad and sister christina known as tina nothing is known of kimmy brad and tina's biological father only that he left the family when evelyn was six months pregnant with kimmy at the time of kimmy's abduction evelyn's luck in love had turned around and she had become engaged to don irwin only a month before kimmy went missing from all accounts all three children adored don sadly don and evelyn have since divorced and i wasn't able to track down any information on don's current whereabouts kimmy was an adorable and happy child with dark brown hair often worn in pigtails and a gap tooth smile that could melt your heart she was an easygoing child and enjoyed playing dress up on the morning of january 24th 1980 Evelyn dressed Kimmy in her snowshoot, hat, and mittens and sent her on her way to school at around 8.30 in the morning. I'm not sure if her brother and sister maybe went to a different school because there was no mention of them leaving with her, so I'm not sure what the normal morning routine was. But it had been mentioned in the documents that that Kimmy's teacher had made a comment that she needed more independence. So this became the first morning that Kimmy was to walk to school by herself and Evelyn felt uneasy about it. It feels a little judgy in the reporting about what I have to assume was an innocent comment by a teacher with very good intentions. I mean, how could the teacher have known what the outcome would be on this day? In the end, there is only one person responsible for Kimmy's death, and it isn't her teacher or Evelyn for just trying to be a good mom. Kimmy was attending Altador Elementary, which was located 6 blocks from her house. I lived about the same distance from my school. And if I remember correctly, it's about a 10 minute walk around here. Kindergarten is usually only a half day of school rather than a full day. So Evelyn would have expected Kimmy me home around 1130 or 12. So at the time when Evelyn was making lunch for her kids, as well as their cousins. And again, I'm not sure if this was the normal routine or if the cousins were just visiting, I don't know the family dynamics but it was Evelyn's niece that had commented at 12.15, where's Kimmy? Right away, the kids and Evelyn started searching the neighborhood, including the schoolyard and calling all of the friends and neighbors that they could think of that might've seen her or where she might've gone. And when she calls the school and talks to the teacher, Evelyn learns that Kimmy didn't make it to school that morning. And this is January and the temperature is dropping to minus 12 that night, which is about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So they know they have to find her fast and Evelyn is starting to feel panicked, but not even considering at that point that someone would be responsible. At this point, the family figures she has just gotten lost on the way or was hiding somewhere for some reason. Evelyn calls her sister and between the two of them, they decide it's time to call the police. A massive search of the neighborhood and surrounding area was launched immediately. Police learned that Kimmy had knocked on the door of her friend Pauline and had woken up her mom Hannah. Hannah, in her sleepy state, told Kimmy that Pauline had already left and she should hurry if she wants to catch up to her. And then Hannah returned to bed. And that was the last sighting of little Kimmy. So they know that she made it that far. But Pauline and her mom Hannah only lived a few houses down from Kimmy. During this search, which included police and volunteers scouring the neighborhood in every trash can and doghouse, and in all the flurry of activity, no one notices a man pulling a toy wagon in which was a green garbage bag through the snow. This would be the worst night for the Thompson family. Evelyn told Sherry Zickfus from The Observer that she just had a feeling. The next day, a couple in the neighborhood out for their lunchtime walk made the grisly discovery of little Kimmy's lifeless and frozen body in a green garbage bag stuffed inside a trash can in a back alley only a block or so from the Thompson's house. Kimmy's body was so frozen that her hair had turned to icicles and the medical examiner's office had to wait an entire day to let her body thaw. Unfortunately, the autopsy didn't give any clues into how she had died, but it was concluded to be asphyxiation. But what the police did have were little brown dog hairs and the garbage bag with a serial number stamped into the seam. Detectives Darrell Wilson and Sid Shields were the primaries assigned to the case and set to work tracking down the serial number on the, the bag and knocking on doors, petting every brown dog they encountered, and bagging up the hairs. Detectives Wilson and Shields are convinced this guy lives nearby and is not a transient. As you can imagine, the people of Altador's community are terrified. They are not letting their kids out of their sight, and worse than that, for some reason, maybe trying to make sense of a crime that makes no sense, rather than accept that there is a serial rapist turned murderer running loose on their streets turns their judgment and anger towards evelyn and dawn as being involved in some manner it got so bad that brad and tina were being mercilessly bullied on the schoolyard for having a murderer for parents that evelyn had to send them to saskatchewan to live with relatives while the search for the real killer continued the police even came out publicly and said that these parents are not suspects, but the judgment and rumors continued. On January 30th, six days after Kimmy's abduction and murder, a man walked into the All West supermarket and said to the assistant manager, Roy Finney, quote, the clothes the police are looking for are out behind the store in the blue bin, end quote. I couldn't find any information on if this guy was ever asked anything like, hey, how did you know that? I actually couldn't find anything that the police looked to track down this guy specifically. But what was found in the blue bin included a pair of girls' panties, which had dog hairs and carpet fibers and human hairs stuck to them. But weeks went by with no arrest, and then months then on june 18th two more rapes two girls 10 and 11 were raped at knife point point. one of the girls only known as mary aged 11 told investigators that a man came up behind both of them and told them quote do whatever i say while holding a knife to her throat and a hand over her mouth they were only steps from mary's home he forced both girls into some bushes He blindfolded her friend while he raped Mary, forcing her to perform oral sex on him, and then moved on to her friend. Remember, these little peanuts are 10 years old. He told them both that if they opened their eyes and looked at him, he would kill them. But Mary, little badass that she was, peaked. And what she saw terrified and haunts her to this day, 42 years later, pimple-pocked skin A round face, dirty, unruly hair, and the stench of body odor that made Mary gag. Mary was given the business card of the detective working her case, and she carried it with her like a security blanket. A week later, she's riding in the car with her mom when she sees walking along the river pathway with a woman, the man that had raped her. She shouts to her mom, that's him, that's him, and her mother slams on the brakes and calls the detective from Mary's business card from a payphone immediately before the guy can catch on and the police swoop in and make the arrest. Downtown at the police station, detectives Wilson and Shields working Kimmy's case, get wind of this guy that has just been brought in for the rape of Mary and is currently sitting in one of the interrogation rooms. So Wilson starts to sniff around, asking, where does this guy live, what does he look like, etc., etc. And then he takes a look into the window of the room and knows immediately, that's their guy. Harold Schmelzer was born in Quebec, the youngest of four siblings. He is reported to be low-functioning with an IQ of 77. Back in 1980, an IQ that low would have qualified as intellectually challenged. But in today's world, we know that although low, it's actually only borderline impaired. The average IQ ranges from 80 to 120. Harold had the usual troubled past, alcoholic abusive father, and he was allegedly sexually abused by his older brother at the age of eight. To me, a lot of blah, blah, blah. In this life, you are either a victim, a survivor, or a perpetrator. And Harold was a perpetrator. When it comes to your past, Everyone has issues. Harold admits to being attracted to young girls as early as age 14. He later admitted to having to fight urges while watching Degrassi Junior High in prison. A very Canadian show, but those of you familiar with Drake might know of it, or you can Google it. Harold and his family moved to Calgary in 1972 and settled in Altador when Harold was 16 one block from the Thompson house. He immediately had run-ins with the law for a variety of petty crimes. At 17, Harold got his 14 year old girlfriend pregnant, which thankfully ended their relationship. There's no report of this girlfriend and if she went on to have the baby, but hopefully she, and if she did keep her baby, that they are doing well away from Harold. After this relationship ended, Harold started to use his neighborhood as his sexual playground and to his own estimate, assaulted up to 40 girls and women between 1975 and his capture in June of 1980. It wasn't until April 1981 when the family would learn the details of what had happened to little Kimmy Thompson on her way to school. And that was when Harold was put on trial and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, which is now referred to as not criminally responsible or an NCR defense. Smeltzer readily confessed to the rapes and murder of Kimmy and was more than happy to share the details. On that January morning, Harold spotted Kimmy walking to school and recognized her from around the area. Harold silently followed her until she stopped to make snowballs. He then ran up to her and grabbed her from behind. Kimmy terrified, yelled at him that she would be late for school. To calm her and keep her from screaming, Harold told her he would drive her to school and then led her by the hand to his parents' house. He took her into his parents' master bedroom where he let her play with his dog, Mitzi. He told her to take off her snowsuit because he wanted to kiss her. Kimmy began to cry. Watching Kimmy cry, Harold says he lost his nerve. He got her a drink of water and asked her where she lived and tried to calm her by talking about, quote, normal things. During their conversation, Harold says he realized what he had done by snatching someone and he had to come up with a plan. He knew that Kimmy could show police where he lived. He considered shooting her or stabbing her, but that would have made a mess and his mom was going to be home soon. Ergo, I guess, a 77 IQ is not so low after all. And this is why I have called my podcast A Million Other Choices. In my victim impact statement, I said to my niece's killer that he had a million other choices he could have made that day. And I believe it to be true in all stories of murders. There are always a million other choices, a million other plans you could come up with. But instead... He filled the bathtub with water, undressed a crying and shaking Kimmy, and gently put her into the bathtub. He also undressed and got into the water with her, thinking he was going to make a game out of it, and pushed her head under the water. Kimmy, not finding the fun in this game, struggled violently, forcing Harold to use both hands to keep her submerged until she became still. Smeltzer then watched from his living room window the flurry of activity building outside on the street. He knew they were looking for Kimmy and that he had to get rid of her fast. He scooped Kimmy's body into a green garbage bag and laid it in his old toy wagon he found in his garage. He then pulled it for two blocks before dumping Kimmy and the bag in the back alley trash can where she was later found. He then erased the wagon tracks in the snow, again showing his IQ is not as low as he had reported, and then went home. He also got rid of Kimmy's clothes in various garbage bins, including the blue bin behind the All West supermarket, where he had let Roy Finney know of their location. Harold Smeltzer was convicted of the first degree murder of Kimmy Thompson, as well as two rapes and two attempted rapes, and sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. In Canada, first degree murder is an automatic life sentence and you cannot ask for parole for at least 25 years. And with second degree, that parole ineligibility period is a minimum of 10 years. So although you could technically die in prison and a lot of cases after the period is up, you can get out and a lot do. Still on probation until you die, but free outside of the walls of a prison. So, because this case is over 40 years old, we get to fast forward and see how many years Harold actually served in prison and how those parole requests went. This is where things get frustrating for Evelyn and the part of the story that goes so often untold. Harold spent the first 23 years of his sentence at the Prince Albert Medium Security Penitentiary in Saskatchewan. In March 2003, he transferred to the Riverbend Institute, which is a minimum security complex. In 2005, he was eligible to begin asking for parole. He did not apply at that time. However, reports from March 2005 state, quote, factors that affected Mr. Smeltzer at the time of his index offense are presently in remission, end quote. In September 2008, Smeltzer officially applied for parole at his hearing, he was 52 and stated to the board that although he was a pedophile and violent sexual offender, he was no risk to children. I'll let that sink in. The board asked him why he did not come forward about his crime, even after the media and public were blaming her parents and continued his rapes until he was caught. He replied, quote, I feel it has always affected me. I just didn't show it at the beginning, end quote. Yet, despite his pitiful attempts at remorse, he was granted day parole for a period of six months at a halfway house. As the parole board stated, he had a good understanding of his risk areas. After the hearing, Evelyn was quoted by Nancy Hicks of Global News as saying, quote, Life is life. Not 10 years, not 20, not 25. Life means you're dead when you come out of that place. End quote. Obviously, Kimmy's family and the rape victims, all now adults, are not pleased. So egregious was this decision at the time that the Saskatchewan Justice Minister, Don Morgan, wrote to the Federal Public Safety Minister, Peter Von Loan about his grave concerns with the board's decision. Don Morgan asked that they look at implementing tougher sentences for offenders that commit crimes against children and consecutive instead of concurrent sentences for certain offences. Van Loan's office stated that they have, quote, no jurisdiction over parole board decisions. The parole board is an independent administrative tribunal whose members are appointed by public safety and they have exclusive authority over the corrections, conditional releases granted, denied, canceled, or terminated, including day and full parole, end quote. The families of victims are permitted to request updates on inmates and can attend parole hearings, but you must be under the definition of a quote victim and sign up for it. Now that's still true today. And if you do attend, all you can really do is write a victim impact statement. In 2008, Smeltzer's day parole had no leave privileges, but no special conditions. In 2009, he was conditionally paroled with conditions that he avoid locations where children congregate, but the parole board still considered his risk as quote manageable in january 2012 smeltzer was arrested and his day parole was revoked when a search of his room at his halfway house he was living in was done and found dvds of an explicit sexual nature which smeltzer said quote, didn't arouse him so that was in january of 2012. in that march the parole board again extended him day parole stating that his risk did not escalate to an unmanageable level In October 2016, he was granted one weekend pass, including overnight leave per weekend. At this point, why he even asked for that is beyond me. His only supporting family members, who had been his mom and his sister, were both deceased by this time. His mom had been 90 back in 2008 uh, when he was having his parole hearings then, and his sister passed away in 2011. So where he planned on staying overnight and with whom is a mystery. Evelyn has continued to try and fight his day parole and any further overnight passes. The last update I was able to find was in 2017 when she was interviewed by Global News after Harold had admitted to the parole board that he had become aroused by an underage girl in the community, despite which both day parole and overnight leaves have continued to be extended. Evelyn has been notified that he could be granted full parole at any time. Even years later, Kimmy's bum, Evelyn, has said, quote, He put us in a prison, too. People say it's been a long time. Let it go. But I don't get parole. She doesn't get parole. She's in the ground. I can never get out. Why should he? And that was the murder of Kimmy Thompson. Kimmy would have been 48 years old at the time of this recording. She is buried at the Mountain View Memorial Gardens. I will be back again next week and almost every week with a new case. Thank you so much for listening.